So a lot of my training as an actor has been to unravel this shield, I would say I've had know that I'm strong and I'm tough and I know what I'm doing, um, that there's always an answer and everything can be perfect and precise. So a lot of my work as an actor has been about becoming messy and cultivating my vulnerability and being okay to share that with others. Ultimately, as actors, we sell our vulnerability. That's what people connect to. That's what audiences connect to. It's the humanity and it lives within all of us. But I, but with certain fields, you learn to shut that down. And I think even in just South Asian culture, culture generally, we're not allowed to admit that we're weak. You know, you're a good Indian kid. You're not allowed to admit that you're wrong or you're weak. And that is a big part of my life right now. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhag Shukla talks with Melanie Chandra about her path through karate, mechanical engineering, corporate consulting, and modeling to become the actor and producer she is today. Hope you enjoy it. model, producer, mechanical engineer, national level karate champion with a second degree black belt philanthropist. No, I'm not talking to six different people today. I'm pleased to be in conversation with Melanie Chandra, who wears all these hats as well as wife and mom hats. Melanie was born and raised in Illinois' Chicago suburbs in a traditional Malayali family. She moved to sunny California, to my neck of the woods where I grew up, where she pursued a degree in mechanical engineering at Stanford and served as senior student body president. After a quick two-year stint at McKinsey, she decided to pursue full-time her childhood dream of acting. She's had a number of television roles, including guest appearances on Rules of Engagement, Parenthood, and Nashville, larger recurring roles on Netflix, Brown Nation, and HBO's The Brink, and the beloved role of Dr. Malaya Pineda for two full seasons on the CBS medical drama Code Black. In 2018, she turned her gaze on producing and has been behind the scenes and in front of the camera for several different projects and shows. One of her latest projects with South Asian women in the forefront is currently in development with HBO. Melanie is the co-founder of the not-for-profit Hospital for Hope in India. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. So first, given that we're in a pandemic that has swept the world into this strange suspension of movement, how are you doing? What's your average day look like right now? And what do you hope sticks when we're on the other side of this? Hmm. Uh, well, we are doing well. Thank you. Healthy. Um, we're all together in a safe place. So, you know, I couldn't be more grateful for that. Where what our day actually looks like is my daughter, who's just two years old. She will <laughs> wake me up, run into our room and wake us up at 630 in the morning. Um, we tell her, please let mommy and dad sleep, please. Just lie down in bed for with us for 10 minutes and then she just asks for a snack or wants to play or go play bubbles so that's the typical morning 
And then um, from there on out, it's a balance of childcare. I think, you know, a lot of parents are trying to figure out that work from home lifestyle, um, you know, having your kid pop in on all of your Zoom meetings. And exactly. <laughs> um, she just started some online schooling. Surprise, believe it or not, there's a program for two-year-olds. So oh, good. We, <laughs> we started doing that. But um, when I'm not with my daughter, um, I'm actively working on a number of creative projects. So, and I think you covered a lot of that in your introduction. Um, a lot of things I'm working on right now, given the pandemic and given that things are not filming because they can't, a lot of writing and producing for some projects I have in development. Oh, good, good. Do you find it challenging to focus or have there been kind of ebbs and flows? Um, definitely ebbs and flows, but I'm not at hundred percent capacity. I, sure. I can't imagine who anyone is, uh, who, who is right now. I mean, you, whether or not you have kids, it's just, there's so much going on and there is so much, um, so many things taking up our mental space and our emotional space. So no, I'm not at hundred percent work capacity. And I, I, I go hard when I'm in the zone, I go hard, but I've, I've definitely allowed myself to take a step back and appreciate this time at home. Yeah. Just, I, I've been, you know, doing a lot of bike rides with my family and exploring nature while I'm not doing these really focused, productive sessions with my creative collaborators and teams. Right. Right. Yeah. No, for many of the staff members here at um, HAF, they have young children. And so, you know, for the first couple months, uh, with zoom, well, with schools kind of transitioning to figure out what they were going to do, uh, we were all definitely, and then just kind of trying to keep up and watching the news all day. Um, I think we realized that, okay, this is not going anywhere. We need to just kind of slow down. And um, so when we are working, I find that we're actually, it's concentrated and we're able to go deep. And then I even took up gardening. I boast about being, you know, having a black thumb, but um, I'm hoping, that, <laughs> uh, you know, just in order to kind of just slow down and um, just enjoy nature. So um, I am now going to talk a little bit or would like to hear from you rather um, a little bit about your childhood. So, you know, many of us grew up in immigrant families and communities and either hopped from one side to the other in terms of balancing or manifesting our Indian and American identities. Some of us picked a side and some of us straddled. So growing up, what were you? Were you a hopper, a one-sider, a straddler, a, a combination of all of those? And then where would you consider yourself today? Wow, that was a really way, really interesting way to put that question. I've never thought about it in those terms. Um, I think I hopped and now I straddle. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up in a small suburb outside of Chicago, which was predominantly white, um, mostly Catholic and Jewish. And we stuck out like a sore thumb. And I think um, because of that, I just tried to fit in. I, I wouldn't say I disowned my Indian roots by any means, um, but I definitely had a love-hate relationship because the more I showed of my culture, the more I was seen as a different, as an other. Um, but I, at the same time, me trying to fit in, you know, 
wearing Hollister and Amber Comby and joining the cheerleading team. I was trying all these things to fit in with the cool kids. And I never felt like I was really fully there. No, no one else looked like me. No one had parents with a similar story. And so I was on that side of it. It wasn't until I went to college and I went to, I went to California, went to Stanford, and it was very diverse. And I realized that, wow, there's so many other first-generation kids just like me. Right, right. And then I went overboard and then I overcompensated. <laughs> and then I went... <laughs> culture crazy. I did all the culture shows. I was dancing. I was unseeing. I was part of, you know, the South Asian Student Association, um, playing leadership roles. So I, you know, we started a Malayalam uh, language program, all of these things. Right, right. Right. Um, and now later on in life, um, yeah, there's both, there's both sides of me. And I think I've, it's taken me a long time, but I can say I finally embrace both sides of me equally. Right. No, that, that really resonates. I remember I, I grew up in Cupertino, uh, not far from the Stanford campus, and it was not the diverse haven that, that it is today. And um, even just basic things like the standard of beauty, right? Most of my classmates were blonde hair, blue eyed. And so, you know, you, you, you enter the room, you might have a different sounding name, your parents definitely make foods that are different. And so it's, it's a challenge. I think now with increasing diversity, I've, I'm seeing these kids who are just a lot more comfortable in their skin. And, and I'm so happy to see that. Um, so in terms of kind of the cultural values that you grew up with, what, what do you appreciate the most about our cultural values and, and, how do you hope to pass that on to your daughter? I think the importance of family above all, you know, at the end of the day, think about what means the most to me now and what will mean the most to me when I'm 80, 90, a hundred years old on my deathbed. It's knowing that I invested in my family. And I think that is one of the most important values that our culture really talks about and supports and encourages. And I, I, I hope that for my daughter as well. Um, the other thing is the worth ethic. And I, I think it's a cultural thing, but it's also an immigrant thing. Um, you know, you and I spoke before about the idea of conservative versus traditional. And I, I wouldn't say that my parents were the typical traditional parents. They didn't tell me, you cannot date, you must marry an Indian man, you have to do X, Y, Z. Um, in fact, they were pretty, you know, open to conversation about things, but it, in terms of conservative, um, I think it was more, they kept their heads down, just keep your head down and work hard. And so these dreams that I didn't admit to anyone about acting, and I know we'll go into that later about acting and the creative arts. It, I just didn't voice that because I didn't know I had the forum to do that. You know, we we're different. We look different. People treat us different. So I'm just going to stay in my lane and do what I'm good at. So, you know, you've, you've trained and competed, uh, competed as a martial artist. You studied mechanical engineering, which probably goes in line with kind of those community expectations, um, you know, as a pre-law student. Um, and now it's different, but at least in the late eighties, either you were engineering track or medicine track. <laughs> so, you know, you studied um, both martial arts and, and mechanical engineering, both field, fields that for me elicit words like 
and these might be stereotypes, but linear, order, precision, Mm -hmm. perhaps Mm -hmm. even rigidity, words that I don't necessarily associate with the arts. So is there anything in particular that you gained from the training so that if you were going to start all over and go straight to acting school, say, and skip the mechanical engineering or skip the martial arts, that you would hope that you would get somehow from those two fields that inform your work as an actor and producer? That is a great question. And I was just thinking about that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Many of us have lived so many different lives. Mm -hmm. And when I look back at some of the things I've done, martial arts was a big piece of it, but sometimes I just forget that I did that because now I'm doing acting producing and now my, my priorities are so different and having a daughter and just this world we're living in. But I was thinking about martial arts the other day. I'm like, wow, that was a huge chunk of my life. Mm -hmm. It's so different than anything I'm doing now. If someone saw saw me, they wouldn't be like, oh yeah, you're a martial arts champion. No, I'm like this petite girl (laughs) who's like playing leading lady roles in Hollywood. It just doesn't. Right. Does not compute. (laughs) No, it doesn't compute. But I had to re- I had to go back and access who, who was I at that person in time? And then how has it helped me now? Because was it just a one it And what I came to, to realize, it was discipline. Mm. That thing. Discipline. Mm-hmm. And even with engineering, it's work. It is research and it's work. Yeah. And you can't just show up at a tournament and compete in front of a hundred or a thousand people and not have put in the work. Right. You can't do that. You can't mm-hmm. show up to your final exam in mechanical engineering having not, not done the work. And that has carried with me all the way through my acting career. And I will admit, there was a point where I had a low in my career where I wasn't booking a lot of things. And that was a time where I had gone to LA. I had some good luck and I booked a lot of things off the bat. But then I started working with these Hollywood teachers Mm-hmm. That said, don't prepare. You have to just go in the audition room, look the material just a few times, but keep it spontaneous. And that's where I did my worst work. Ah, interesting. Because I, yeah, because I wasn't prepared. I wasn't disciplined, even though that's how I was trained and knew what I had to do to succeed. I was I was chasing what is the formula to to booking the Hollywood role, and these teachers were just teaching you how to audition. No, you don't have to prepare. Just da, da, da. works for some people, but does not work for me. Hmm. Interesting. So I guess as a follow-up, is there something from that training that you've had to unlearn? Yes, absolutely. Um, martial arts, engineering, and consulting. After college, I went into management consulting and you're this 21, 22 year old kid who pretends that they know everything speaking to you. Um, so a lot of my training as an actor has been to unravel this shield. I would say I've had right. So that I'm strong and I'm tough and I know what I'm doing, um, that there's always an answer and everything can be perfect and precise. There's a lot of precision with martial arts. So a lot of my work as an actor has been about becoming messy and cultivating my vulnerability and being okay to share that with others. Ultimately, as actors, we sell our vulnerability. That's what people connect to. That's what audiences connect to, right? It's 
it's the humanity and it lives within all of us. But I, but with certain fields, you're learned to shut that down. And I think even in just South Asian culture, culture generally, we're not allowed to admit that we're weak. Right. Right. You know, you're a good Indian kid. You're not allowed to admit that you're wrong or you're weak. And that is a big part of my life right now. Right. I've, I've actually noticed that as I, you know, we've had in our family, a mix of people, cousins who married people from India. And then there's, there's the cousins who grew up here. And the one thing that I've noticed, and this is kind of like that American side of many of us, like self-deprecating humor, it takes a certain level of vulnerability and a certain level of kind of picking at your own flaws uh, that allows that sort of sense of humor to open up. And I've noticed that it's kind of uniquely American. I mean, maybe now things are changing because, you know, we're exposed to different types of art forms and, you know, you can be sitting in an apartment in Ahmedabad and be watching Friends and be exposed to that sort of humor. But um, it was definitely something that um, I think, you know, that what you what you said about as as growing up children of immigrants and Indian Americans, we're really we don't see our parents admitting their mm. vulnerabilities. And so we kind of internalize that. Um, mm. So that that makes sense, like in terms of what culture, in addition to martial arts, engineering, all those things um, could have really posed an obstacle mm. um, so, so let's talk about the risk that you took. Um, mm-hmm. You took a very big risk, um, especially, and we, and you touched upon this earlier, immigrant culture tends towards risk, risk aversion, right? And especially in the realm of career choice, pick something that's going to be stable. So what are some of those earliest struggles that you faced um, breaking into the world of acting that probably your parents, they hopefully didn't say this, but what would have been those told you so moments like, this is why we said stick with McKinsey. I have a a clear told you so, so moment. It revolves revolves around healthcare. So (laughs) when I left McKinsey and uh, you know, they give you Cobra or whatever to carry you on for Mm -hmm. a few months and that was running out. And my parents are like, what are you going to do for healthcare? And I'm like, Oh, I don't need it. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be fine. I'm healthy. Oh, and then like a month later, literally I had some weird infection and my, it was so bizarre. My cheek was like puffing out and I had to go to a doctor and it cost me like 600 out of pocket, which was a, oh, lot, no. a lot for a lot for me at the time. I yeah. wasn't generating any income. I was just on my savings from, from consulting. So um, that was a, I told you so moment. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say that was when I, again, my parents were very supportive and I'm very, very lucky for that. They weren't, their their biggest question was healthcare. How are you going to afford that? And two is how are you going to pay back your student loans? Hmm. Right? Fair. A lot of student loans, a lot of student loans. Stanford is not inexpensive, right? right? I had to have so, took out so many loans. Um, and my parents can't repay that, right? They're all like very middle income. And so the hope was I would work a great job that's going to generate income and that's going to pay back my loans, right? Sure, sure. Um, so I didn't have that job anymore, but I told them, I promised them, I promise you, I will pay back every penny by myself. Mm-hmm. I'll figure out a way to do that without selling my soul. 
Um, and I, you know, I had my modest monthly payments that I could support, but when I got my first big TV role in code black after my second episode, I just paid it off in one lump sum some, and it was the best feeling. Absolutely. I can imagine. Um, but yeah, they, they, they knew they, that their daughter had a spark within her that she never really pursued before. And I think my dad and I've always been creative souls. Um, mm-hmm. he wanted to be a drummer when he was a kid in the village of India and ah. his dad told him, no, you have to become a, a med tech and work your way up. And my dad did that for 35 years, Right, um, right. moved here with very little, just an education and just worked his way up. And when he retired and both kids were out of college at that point, he picked up the drums again. Oh, good for him. (laughs) (laughs) All these drums, he performs at nursing homes and he's part of a drum circle in Chicago. It's very adorable. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. He's very excited when I, you know, I'm able to fulfill my creative dreams. Yeah, that's great. So what advice would you give someone wanting to make kind of a radical shift in their career or life um, from the lessons that you've learned? Don't wing it. (laughs) Don't wing it. Do your research. Um, I know I was fortunate to have a a great job before I got into, before I fully committed committed myself to a creative profession. Um, Some people would ask, should I just should I pursue that creative passion early on or should I work a side job and then do it? Um, you have to be responsible. You have to find a way to support yourself, right? You'll never be able to fully commit to your other craft if you can't pay your own bills. So I would just say be strategic about it. I don't think one thing is right or wrong, but your survival, your mental health is so much more important. Um, so really prioritize that and while you're able to start dabbling into the world that you want to go into, whether it's music, art, theater, um, do your research, meet people, find a mentor, um, consume as much content that's inspiring to you. And you're never going to feel ready. You're never going to feel ready and just embrace that, embrace the uncertainty. But it's, it's hard. I went in I and mean, I think people nowadays are a little bit better primed than I was. When I, when I joined, there were only a few Indian faces on TV. And of course there's a lot of great actors on TV, but at that age, I, you just resonate with people that look like you that have a similar story and no one else had a similar story. They came from this theater background, had part of this family. I was just starting out. And so I met with every, Indian actor I could just to get their advice. And, um, you know, one of the first people I met, I was working for McKinsey at the time was this Indian American actress in New York. Um, she was also from the Midwest and she's like, I'm doing it. If I could do it, you could do it. Oh, that's great. And that little, that inspired me. She's like, I make my money doing commercials while I audition for other things. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, if she can do it, I can do it. Right. Right. I saw myself in her. I'm like, she also grew up, she's American, but she's Indian. She gets it. Right. So that, yeah, I, I'd say just keep talking to people, learn what, learn what's possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to necessarily do what I did, which is as an engineer, I created a flow chart right after I left. <laughs> How it was 
all these boxes with errors and the, the final box was working actor. <laughs> okay, I have to take this seminar in this class. I have to get headshots and a reel and this is great ad and network and all that. And I mean, I'm sure it all helped. You need, you need some strategy, but not all of it's going to work and it's not going to work out on your own timeline. It's not. Right. Right. And but you, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that you were an outsider in so many ways, not just, I mean, you have being an Indian American and not having kind of the, the roles or role models or just a handful. And then on top of that, coming from an engineering background, um, and it, it sounds like it was something you always wanted to do, but did you do high school theater or anything to kind of even tap into? I performed skits in my fourth grade spelling bee. Oh boy. All the words. That's <laughs> <laughs> a real fun. outsider. <laughs> that was really cool. Um, in high school though, I wrote sketches and performed them at a variety show and I would always incorporate martial arts and the piano I also played the piano and right. so it would be one of those cheesy things where <laughs> I'd be like in class or I'd be playing I think it was like playing the piano I was like pretending I was at a concert and these thugs come and try to like mess the whole thing up and then I beat them all up like karate kid style it was so cheesy in retrospect, but I was my, those were my first. Those were your <laughs> outlets. That <laughs> and I would do in, in college, like I said, I would MC all the, the, the things, all the Indian America, the South Asian Student Association functions. And we put on little sketches and all that. Right. right. Um, I took a couple of um, improv classes at Stanford as well. And so um, and I, I was a cheerleader. That's very performative as well. Yeah, but, um, sure. Not theatrical. So no, I'd never right. done a theater production before. Wow. And it was really intimidating going into these audition rooms and like, oh my God, they've been doing, they got their theater degree from NYU. Right. At, from Columbia. Whoa. Um, and it, it intimidated me a lot. Hmm. So I want to, you touched upon this just in terms of what types of mentors were available for you. So let's talk a little bit about representation in the mm -hmm. media. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, some of the earliest experiences that many of us had with representation of India and Indians was, was either like weirdly grotesque, like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and the scene <laughs> of Amrish Puri, like eating monkey brains while eerily chanting, Kali Ma. Um, or highlighting kind of poverty, social discrimination, misogyny as kind of the defining features of modern Indian life or, or a definition of, of who we were as a people. And Indian Americans didn't exist, right? In spite of our growing presence in the country. Later, we had Apu um, from, the, from Bart Simpson or the Simpsons. And there's been kind of a love-hate response to him of late. Um, you know, people... Um, amongst our community, at least, um, hating the character because of the racist stereotype um, that he can represent, or to loving him simply for being a positive representation to ambivalence. Mm -hmm. Today, we see actors like you in long-running roles on primetime. Um, Mindy Kaling had her own show, The Mindy Project, and now her project, Never Have I Ever, has held the number one spot in um, on Netflix for for. I don't know how many weeks. Mm -hmm. So would you say Indian Americans have arrived 
in terms of representation, both behind and in front of the camera? And what challenges remain with regard to typecasting and stereotypes? We are arriving. Arriving. Yeah, the numbers aren't there. Sure. I mean, how many people can you point to have their own shows on network? There's Mindy Kaling. <laughs> right. Aziz Ansari, Headmaster of Nuts. Yes, that's true. Hasan Minaj. Hasan Minaj. So a handful, less than one hand. Less than one hand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're making dents. They're being talked about. People are watching. So that's great. We are arriving. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more and more South Asian actors on primetime TV, which is mm-hmm. great. A um, couple movies uh, this past year are coming out that have South Asians and, you know, one of the lead roles, which mm-hmm. is great. Um, so we're arriving. What needs to change, and it's slowly happening, but we need more. We need more of a push is getting more of the storytellers of South Asian descent in those rooms, mm-hmm. right? You need South Asian writers in the writer's room. Mm-hmm producers, directors, executives at media companies that are going to say, I'm going to give this show my stamp of approval. Let's get it to air. Let's get never have I ever to air. Let's make sure it's our mandate that this cast is South Asian or very diverse. Right? Right, right. So we need these advocates at all levels because being just an actor can be very reactive. We're just waiting for the audition Mm -hmm. to see what shows are casting for South Asians. But if we can get on the other side of that Mm. to create those roles, to create those projects, that's where the shift happens. That's where the momentum starts. Are you seeing more and more people behind the camera and, or, or what would be the pathway to get there? That's a good question. I think everyone has that question starting out. And I, um, it, you know, it depends what your goal is. Is it to be, um, do you want to be the writer? Do you want to be the producer? Do you want to be a media executive? And I think they're all different tracks, but I think starting out is again, be just gathering your research. Who, who can you reach out to that can give you, that can pull you in essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. I was talking to one of my very close friends. She works on Insecure on HBO. And we were talking about this issue because I was saying, you know, there's a lot of South Asians for Black Lives Movement, but we don't talk to each other. You and I are really good friends. Like, tell me, like, what can we do? And what is the what can you is what is Black New doing to help your stories being told? And she said it all starts with someone senior in the room already saying, I know this girl. She's great. You got to give her a chance. Right, right. Yeah. The white person in the room is going to be like, we definitely need a South Asian because I think their perspective is interesting. Right. <laughs> that, can, that can only go so far. And sure. for these mandates now where people have to check the boxes on primetime shows, you have to have this many diverse characters. And that's great to get in there. But in terms of the influence, it doesn't guarantee any influence. Right, right. It doesn't guarantee and, people are going to listen to you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it doesn't avoid some of the stereotype type casts, right? That you might be thrown into because you're a box. Oh, we need a South Asian. They should be a doctor or the an engineer mm-hmm. or a little bit nerdy or whatever it is. Um, you're going to see, you're going to keep seeing that as opposed to some of these complex Exactly. Stories that reflect who we really are as people. Exactly. 
Yeah. So, so um, let's talk about some specific projects. You and I have a friend in common, Rajiv Satyal. Hi, mm-hmm. Rajiv, if you're listening. Um, you recently worked on a two-person comedy show called Back to School. Mm-hmm. So what was that about? And was that your first experience with live comedy or stage acting? And how is that experience and process different from, say, playing Dr. Pineda on a TV <laughs> series? Sure. So actually, Rajiv and I started doing stage work together back in, I think in 2010, when I was still working at McKinsey, he was one of my first champions, actually. Look at that. We met at a function. We had great rapport. And he said, let's write some material together. Mm-hmm. And we wrote these comedic sketches that we put online. And then people thought we were like this hosting duo, this comedic <laughs> thing. And then we got invited to host a one of these dance competitions, these like South Asian college dance competitions. And um, we started performing sketches together on stage. And then we did our own two-person show back in... Oh gosh, I can't remember what year. Maybe it was 2011. It was for 500 people in Chicago. And Mm -hmm. uh, again, all original material. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing this. I I don't know. I didn't know the right way to do anything. I just thought this is entertaining. This is fun. Let's just do it. And we did it. It was so thrilling. It was so thrilling. My my family got to come to that show and we got a lot of great feedback. And from there, I, um, I, we didn't continue doing stage because I started getting involved in TV right away. Mm Mm-hmm. But came back full circle earlier this year, and I really was craving to do something on stage again because a, um, it's fun, it's scary, but I wanted to be pushed out of my comfort zone. I've been doing things on camera for so long, mm-hmm. and I knew the best way to sharpen my muscles was to get back on stage. Right, and like I said, I didn't grow up doing theater. Yeah, with yeah. my friend and. It was a really fun writing process. I pulled in some of my other friends that are great actors on TV to be a part of the production and guest roles. And yeah, we sold out our shows over the weekend in New York. It was so shocking. Um, people were like, we can't get tickets. Like, oh. I was like, I have no idea how that happened. That's um, a great problem to have. <laughs> it was a great problem. But, and I think it was because no one else is doing like, no, no yeah. one else is doing it. That's the thing. You just need an idea and you just need to say, Hey, let's do this. And you do it. And people will show up. A lot of people have ideas, but they don't actually execute them. And I don't think there was a South Asian show like that running. And it wasn't, it wasn't particularly South Asian show. We just happened to be South Asian. And um, to your question, what was it about? It was um, a show about two, two kids um, living out a high school day in 1999. Okay. Um, And so we took you through East, each period from morning announcements to a pep rally at the end. And we played different characters in each. And I think the underlying theme, I had this whole um, monologue and stage was about identity. And I did talk about the Indian side and the American side of me, but we, we did weave in a message and it was, it was really meaningful. You know, we, Mm -hmm. we put our hearts into the show and I think people responded very well. So that's great. I mean, yeah. he, I, I had the chance to see, um, man in the middle. Um, he performed mm-hmm. here in, in New Jersey and, um, I always have a great time with Rajiv. So hopefully, you know, sometime in 2021, um, you can pick it up again and, and bring back to school back again <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe keep Philadelphia on your short list. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> so what's, um, what's down the pipeline for both, um, both in terms of acting and producing or soon to be released for you? 
Sure. So on the acting front, um, I just had a short film that went to a bunch of film festivals. Uh, it's called Josiah and it's, it actually explores the timing of it is crazy. It explores race in the audition room and the casting process with um, a black man who's auditioning for the lead of a primetime series. Interesting. Um, so that's been getting a lot of buzz, which is interesting. We shot it, you know, a year, year and a half ago, and it just came out a few weeks ago. So that's very interesting. Um, I have two comedies in post-production right now on the feature side. And who knows when that's going to release. I can never, like, people set dates and they, and then the pandemic happens. So who knows? Right, right, right. Um, and then on the producing front, I have two t- TV projects in development one is a half hour comedy for HBO and I'm working with my super talented friend from Stanford, who is an executive producer on Insecure right now, Amy okay. Adobe. And it is about an Indian American tech entrepreneur mm. and um, who's kind of at the most stressful point in her career and her immigrant mom shows up. Okay. Well, very real. Seeking <laughs> a divorce from her husband, from her, from her husband, and wanting to move in with her daughter. So, um, this was all based on like real life stories of friends and mm-hmm. family and all that on both of our sides. And she's first generation Nigerian American, and so the mother daughter relationship was really. Um, yes. There were a lot of parallels from the mm-hmm. Nigerian community and the Indian community too. So that was really interesting. Um, I have another project that hasn't been announced yet, but it's um, also a very, it's a comedy. It's very close to my heart. I'll be uh, co-starring in it with one of my friends and writing, executive producing, all that. So currently working on that right now, but you know, with TV, you, you work, 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 and then you have to hit a milestone and then you get the chance to keep going. So we have so many more milestones to hit, but I'm just very excited to be doing this creative work right now. Um, so there's that. And then I'm working on a little digital, digital series with some friends. We're in post-production. So just, just keeping creative. That's great. That's great. Well, we're really excited. I, you know, I'm, I still get excited. It's just funny. If an, uh, even if a commercial comes on and there's a brown person, I'm like, look, (laughs) there's an Indian in that Kentucky fried chicken ad or whatever it is. And it's just like, it's still, um, it's still, such a, such a treat to kind of get that. So I I'm looking forward to all these, all these different programs and, you know, just not to have that blip, but to actually really have the opportunity to see like really real characters coming to life on the screen. Um, so before we end our conversation, um, I do want to ask you about Hospital for Hope, which mm-hmm. is an initiative that um, you volunteered in and it was started by um, and supported by Stanford alumni. It provides healthcare services to mm-hmm. underserved villagers in rural India. Can you tell us a little bit about this project and um, what, what your role there still looks like and um, how people might learn more about the uh, initiative? Sure. So the idea is actually formed out of a student group at Stanford called Project Dosti. And I applied for it one year. And basically, they send volunteers to different parts of India every summer to to volunteer. And so I volunteered one summer with um, four or five other individuals. And, you know, we worked with a community in Jharkhand um, outside of Ranchi. And we 
worked with kids. We did forestation, reforestation projects. We taught English, like a hodgepodge of things, you know, mm-hmm. college kids getting exposed to that sort of world, right? We were not yeah. rocket science or anything, but it was just a great exposure and a great way to um, do what we could. Um, years later, we all had, all the volunteers had been in close contact with each other. And we were saying, we are now in a position to do more. We're not just college kids. We're in a position to do more. We all have careers. We have resources, access to individuals that can also continue to support. So we decided what was the biggest need at that time when we had worked in this community. It was a functioning hospital. It was access to healthcare services. So we came up with this goal to build a hospital there. The nearest functioning hospital was a half day Jeep ride away. Wow. Right. And imagine monsoon season. And right. All so we built something locally. We partnered with another organization that um, helped us do the infrastructure. And the six, no, five of us at the time, we raised $100,000 in, mm-hmm. in a year and built wow. thing. And now it operates. And um, I don't know the exact numbers today. I've kind of stepped away operationally. Sure. For the last two years to focus on other things, but I still support at a higher level, but it's, um, yeah, supporting thousands of patients every month. That's fantastic. So, um, so that's great. And a lot of community outreach and, um, working with some of the maternity issues there and clinics and right, right. a lot, a lot of things. So, um, I can't take all the credit for it is honestly the vision of Amit Garg, who is a saint, he was mine at Stanford and he's the one that kind of brought the team together. But under his vision, we were able to build this thing. That's that's really um, a wonderful initiative to to learn about. And all the audience, all they have to do is Google um, Hospital for Hope in India. And you can also Google Melanie Chandra and find out more. Um, Melanie, I want to thank you for this conversation. I appreciate your time and your willingness to share Um share your story with us. And I know that it's going to inspire a lot of young people out there um, who might be wanting to do something different, may not be acting, but it may just be off the the beaten track. And um, it's important that we have like you in the community who have um, at least are starting to pave the way. So thank you. Thank you. This is great. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.